Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. Today's program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, October 3rd, 2020. Right now, it is Friday morning, October 2nd, and I have TruthVids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part nine of this series. Hello, TruthVids. Thank you for being here once again. Hey, Bill. Great to be back. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, we could move on to the next points. I think this one will be uh, – we'll probably cover a few more points than usual. Um, did you want to mention this article attacking uh, 100 lies that the Israelites were white? Did you want to briefly mention that today, Bill? Well, well right. It's interesting that um... – our, I, I, I don't know, I, I'm really totally indifferent to these people, but I, I guess we could call them our adversaries or our enemies, that these are um, renegade, tribune, that they're sexually decadent, immoral pagans who actually have a significant following on the internet and are always trying to attract whites and, and white nationalist-minded people into their paradigm, which is decadence and, and immorality, pro-white decadence. I, I, I don't know how decadence could ever be pro-white. They deny Christianity. That They, um, they support a host of, of, of things that we would find odious or perverted, that they're openly feminist. Um, I, I, I don't know. I have a lot of criticisms of them, but they're, they've attacked Christogenia in the past and, and twisted up our positions on things as if to mock them. And, and I guess they've caught wind of your 100 proofs that the Israelites were white video, and, and now they're attacking that. Yeah, and um, as you'd expect, they're taking everything out of context, twisting every point. Uh, you know, they mention certain things and neglect to mention the rest. And then, uh, you know, make silly claims and then try to make it as though CI is ridiculous. When, when you know, when you read any of their articles, I haven't spent much time on the site, you know, barely 10 minutes, but I can see all their articles that they don't seem to have any kind of belief system. It's just basically anti-Jew and anti-Christian. So, so what do they really believe then? It just seems all absurd. Well, well, right. I mean, they're they're just I don't know products of pop culture gone wrong. It, it's and and these are the people, at least some of the people that I had in mind when I had written articles and did podcasts like my white nationalist cognitive dissonance, which I think was two podcasts back a few years ago, I think with Sven Longshanks. And, and they blame Christianity for the corruption of Europe. And, and then on the other hand, they claim that Europe was never really Christian. And, and that's what they're claiming in their attack on your video, that they're claiming that Europe isn't Christian and that most people don't even believe in God in Europe. So, so is can they really blame Christianity for Europe's problems and at the same time boast that 
much of Europe is not Christian. That, that there's a, a false dichotomy there, that there's a conflict, a, a conflict, a, a dissonance in their thinking and their reasoning. So, and, and they're ignorant as to how much um, of an impact Christianity did have on the formation of what we could call later European culture. That it's entirely Christian. And that they'll never see that. That they're just um, rebels without a cause, I guess. That they don't really believe in anything, but they're anti-certain things. Anti-Christianity, anti-God is basically what they are. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's always difficult to know if they really are genuine whites who, who believe this or, or there's nefarious forces behind them supporting them, you know, Jews. I always suspect that. Of, of course, I can't prove anything. But, but you know, it just seems so unnatural, this, this hatred for um, Christianity. But, but they're, you know, they understand that Jews are behind everything. They're, they're just, it just seems silly. Well, well, yeah, they both have speckled pasts or checkered pasts. Um, Sinead McCarthy and Kyle Hunt are the people behind Renegade Tribune. Sinead was a, a race mixer. She, was, she has YouTube videos that are still on YouTube to this very day of, of her being all chummy and doing music, making music, making songs, singing with, with Negroes. Kyle Hunt, he was a, he called himself the cosmic Gnostic, maybe as recently as five or six years ago. And he was selling something called the Rainbow Alphabet on podcasts, claiming to have this, um, that this enigmatic Gnostic knowledge, right? And, and selling that. And, and when that didn't work out too well for him, he tried to become a, a pagan Viking type. And he had websites and, and domains registered in, in, in order to go down that path. And I guess that wasn't profitable for him either. He, he's just looking to make money as a pundit of one form or another. And, and finally he started the Renegade Radio and, and Renegade Tribune, and, and that seems to have gotten him somewhere. Basically all he does is comment on the news and, and attack Christianity. He does it all the time. I don't know what value yeah, yeah, he, it's clear he, he offers. I don't love their race. They're just in it to make money. Well, yeah, that's what I believe. So it, it's a shame that we have to um, even mention them. But on the other hand, it's good that for good or bad, your video is getting their attention and, and that perhaps more pagans will go watch the whole video. Because, and make their own mind up. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you could mock three points or four or five. Even the original video, which I, 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 I thought was great, but I had some criticisms of it. And, and you could mock three, four, five points, but what about the other 96, 97 points? What about them? I, I mean, that there's no doubt that the origins of Christianity 
are a part of what we could call white or European culture, that they're intertwined in, in from the earliest centuries. So they could deny that all they want, but that doesn't make it untrue. It certainly is true. Yep, exactly. All right, should we get into the uh, point 26? I believe we're on now. Yes, the um, the fact that true Israelites were, were divorced by their God and put off in captivity and dispersed and that they would not ever resettle in Palestine. And, and this is found that there are diverse prophecies relating to this, and I'm only going to bring up two of them. The first one is from Hosea chapter 2. And Hosea was told to have children with the whore. And those children were named um, Lo-Ami, which means not my people, and Lo-Ruhama, which means not to have mercy. And, and these represented what Yahweh God was going to do with the children of Israel, what his plans for them were. And in Hosea chapter 1, at the end of Hosea chapter 1, it would be said to them in the place where they were told that they were not his people, it will be said to them at some point in the future that they are the children of the living God. And, and that points to a reconciliation. Then in the beginning of Hosea chapter 2, it would be said to them that they would not have mercy, but then they would have mercy, which is a, a, a repeat, an expression repeating the sentiment or, or the fact that the Israelites would again be reconciled to their God at some point in the future. So in Hosea chapter 2, Israel collectively as a nation, is seen as the mother of these children. And it says, and, and this is the word of the Lord, this is Yahweh speaking, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. If we examine the minor prophets and the history of the kingdom period of Israel, they were to be a separate people. They weren't supposed to have trade and intercourse with other nations. They were supposed to push the other nations out of the way. And instead they resorted to treaties and, and trade and intercourse and, and race mixing with all the other nations. So that, that, is called whoredom in the prophets, that the nation was committing whoredom, dealing with these other nations that were pagan or that weren't even white, weren't even Adamic, they were not supposed to deal with. So, as a punishment, if she doesn't put her whoredoms out of her sight, it says, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born, 
and make her as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother has played the harlot. She that conceived them has done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And that's an, an expression of the evil that the children of Israel had committed in conducting this international trade with these other nations, which they were not supposed to do. They were supposed to remain a separate people and not trade with the other nations. So the word of God says in verse 6 of Hosea chapter 2, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths, and she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better with me than now. And if we look at the history of the Israelites in captivity, they were ultimately forced to be a separate people by the, the circumstances which they had suffered in captivity and their, their subsequent migrations out of captivity into northern Europe, where there were no other people. There were no Egyptians. There were no Assyrians. That there were no Babylonians, no Persians, and there were no Canaanites. And these people had actually become secluded for many centuries just for that reason. Now, now some of them interacted with the Greeks, and they sought to sack Rome, and, and they actually sought to sack the Greeks, too. But individual Scythians had, had served in Greek armies as mercenaries or, or in Athens, that they were hired to be um, more or less the policemen of, of Athens, Scythian archers, um, because they would be seen as being objective and not involved in the politics of Athens. So, so they protected Athens to a point, to an extent, internally. That seems to be what the, um, some of the ancient historians are informing us. So they had some degree of exchange with Greeks and Romans, but for the most part, most of the Germanic peoples had never seen a Greek or a Roman for, for many centuries. And they were west of the Rhine. Most of them were east of the Rhine and north of the Danube River. And it would be, from the time of their captivity, it would be eight or nine centuries before they had any serious interaction with Greeks and Romans. Once they did, they ended up destroying the, the Roman Empire looting and pillaging it and, and tearing it down and taking it for themselves. So they never again saw any of these lovers of ancient Israel, 
Egyptians, Babylonians, Persians, Assyrians were never found again. All of those nations ultimately over that same period of time became overrun with, with Arabs and, and other mixed races and, and they were all basically blended into a, or, or I should say several puddles of mud that they are not their former selves. They were never great nations again. By the time the Germanic states had formed in the West, these old nations of the East were, for the most part, gone. They were never again great yeah, white and, um, nations. All these places gradually became deserts, right? And uh, where it says, I will make fawns, there, there's no like great fawn, bush, fawn bushes in this desert. So, so it's very clearly speaking about people, and, and that's exactly what um, Yahweh said uh, first initially to Adam and Eve, right? That um, because they had mixed with the serpent, uh, am I correct? Just playing well, off well, my mind right. that there would be fawns and pricks in the eyes, and then he repeated that when they wouldn't wipe out the Canaanites. So it's clearly talking about this race from Cain that uh, would be this form bush in that area, i.e. Arabs, Jews, etc., etc., right? Um, the connection is valid. It, it's not quite that way, but it, it's valid. If um, in Genesis chapter 3, because they had interacted and, and, and committed the sin of sexual intercourse, with members of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is really what Genesis 3 is a parable representing. Part of the punishment of Adam is that the ground is cursed and thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Thorns and thistles. And this too is speaking allegorically. It's not speaking literally. Later, the Canaanites, were, who were actually the mixed races of ancient Palestine, which the children of Israel had been commanded to exterminate, they were called pricks and thorns. The children of Israel were told that if they did not destroy every last one of them, that they would be pricks and thorns unto them. Thorns in their sides, pricks in their eyes, and, and that too is allegorical. The children of Israel never had literal pricks in their eyes, but these Canaanites had gotten, themsel gotten themselves into a position where they could blind the children of Israel, and that certainly did happen, and, and that's happened ever since the first Jews became converts into the Roman Catholic Church in medieval Europe. That's happened. So... Where it says in Hosea, I will hedge up thy way with thorns, it's not talking about um, God making a bunch of thorns grow in the wilderness so that the children of Israel could not get back to ancient Palestine and find her lovers, the Egyptians, the Persians, the Babylonians, the, the Assyrians. That's not what it's saying. The people in those regions... The Canaanites had, had come to spread themselves everywhere. The Canaanites, the Edomites, the Arabs are basically 
mixed-race Canaanites and Edomites, just like the Jews are. The people became the thorns that have prevented us Europeans collectively from going back and having commerce once again with those lovers who are now gone. It took... Yeah, and they've been there ever since, right? That, that We've never got rid of them. Uh, we, we had a few crusades, uh, you know, et cetera, where we tried to go back and for a short time here and there, maybe had a little colony, you know, kingdom of Jerusalem, but it never lasted. And we were always pushed back by this, uh, you know, bush of thorns, right? Well, well right. The thorns always prevailed. And, and the... The, the Crusaders ultimately lost out for two reasons. First, Europe was never unified in its interests. But more importantly, those who did try to retake the Middle East for Christendom could not overcome those pricks and thorns, those people. That's how that wave was hedged up. All of those nations became bastardized they were no longer white nations. That happened in the greatest extent under Islam. And they are the pricks and thorns that the scripture is talking about. So when Christ had, um, when Christ had distinguished men by their fruits, he asked his disciples whether men should gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles because in first century Judea much of the population was actually Edomite the modern Jews descend from those Edomites and those Edomites were also thorns and thistles and those Edomites were the thorns and thistles that Adam was warned about in Genesis chapter 3 as a result of his sin. So Christ didn't choose those words because they sounded cool. He was actually making that same connection back to where the Canaanites were called thorns and pricks and where Adam was warned that the ground was going to yield thorns and thistles. So men don't gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles. In other words, we don't try to convert these Edomite bastards and all of these Canaanite Arab peoples to Christianity because we're trying to make grapes out of thorns and thistles. In Second yeah, Samuel... Convert, I'm sorry, go sorry. on. I was go just going to say, if you convert whites, uh, you'll see a civilization and you'll see grapes and fruit growing on that civilization, whilst if you go and try and convert Arabs, you'll just get pricked with thorns, right? It, it's... A uh, very good allegory that Christ uses. Absolutely. Every time you um, you accept a Jew into your society and think he might be a Christian or even think that he might be um, amenable and, and cooperative in a Christian society, you're going to get stabbed in the back. Look at what's happened to us today. We've accepted these pricks and thorns and they've stabbed us in the back. Six million times. <laughs> in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's another prophecy. And Samuel is standing in Jerusalem talking to David, 
who's going to be the king of Israel. And the prophecy says, and, and these are the words of God, moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a, in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore as before time. Now, that did happen. I mean, we have children of wickedness among us today, but for over a thousand years, we did not. In, in, and actually, it's probably about 1,500 years. We did not have children of wickedness afflicting Germanic Europeans and, and Celtic Europeans. So the Romans had their um, Jews in Rome, and, and the Greeks had their Canaanites among them. Anyway, this place could not be in Palestine. It had to be somewhere else. Otherwise, it makes no sense that Samuel is telling David these things, standing in Jerusalem. So it, it, it shows that Jerusalem was never the um, so-called promised land by itself. Israel, Palestine was never the promised land by itself. That there was another place where the children of Israel would ultimately dwell. Flavius Josephus, talking about the Assyrian captivities of the ten tribes, or nine and a half tribes, as he calls them, which, if we examine the history of the Assyrian captivities, actually represented elements of all twelve tribes. But Flavius Josephus called them nine and a half tribes only because there were remnants of two and a half tribes remaining in Jerusalem at his time, in, in Judea at his time. So he didn't go so far as to say that these were all 12 tribes, but they really were. He only counted nine and a half because parts of, small parts of two and a half tribes were, were still in Judea. So he was he he had mentioned these people beyond the Euphrates River as an innumerable multitude and said that they were there in his time that he was writing his book um, Wars of the Judeans as an appeal to those people to help the Judeans in their cause against Rome. That's why he wrote that book. He originally wrote it in Aramaic so that because he expected those people to be able to understand Aramaic so that they would come to the assistance of Judea against the Romans. But they never did. These people beyond the Euphrates, this innumerable multitude, as Josephus describes it, they were not Jews. They were never Jews. And when we read um, Strabo of Cappadocia or, or any of the other early historians, and, and Strabo was basically a geographer, he went through all of the regions known to the Greeks and described the people that lived there. And 
we only find Scythians, Sake, Scythians, um, people that were the forerunners of the Germanic tribes beyond the Euphrates, people that were later known as, as Alans and, and Goths. We don't find Jews. So who is the innumerable multitude that were beyond the Euphrates? Josephus said, there are but two tribes in Asia and Europe subject to the Romans, while the ten tribes are beyond Euphrates until now. Saying that, Josephus seems to be ignorant of all of the earliest migrations of Israelites into Europe the Danning Greeks, the Dorian Greeks, that the, um, the Iberians that were subject to Rome in the first century AD. He's only counting, apparently, the, the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity. And where they went, that must be that new home, which was being described in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The thorns are the Canaanites who were left behind, the Edomites who were left behind, and who had begun to race mix with the Romans, with the Greeks, with the Israelites that returned, eventually resulting in Arab people. And of course the Arabs had had brought in, well, after the Islamic period, the Arabs began to bring in Negroes and people of other races and accept them into Islam and race mix with them, which is why Arabs are generally dark brown today or dark, darkly olive skinned today because they're not white any longer. At one time, they were all white, or at least apparently white. Yeah, and they're also, um, they're not just described as fawns, but also uh, screech owls, right? And jackals in, in the Old Testament, is that? Well, well right, there's several, there's several prophecies in, in, um, in Scripture where the place, certain places, Babylon being one of them, certain places in the Middle East are said, it, it is said that they would become deserts. When in 600 BC, 700 BC, these places were very fertile. They supported large flocks. They, they produced much goods in, in the way of fruits and vegetables and, and oils and things like that. What well, well it's said that they would become deserts, and it's said that devils and screech owls and, and jackals and, and various beasts would dwell there. And those places have always been inhabited to this day by Arab peoples. So where do these devils and screech owls come in? And the truth is that it's those Arab peoples that are the devils and, and the screech owls and the jackals. That's who it's describing. Yeah. And then there's another prophecy uh, that Esau would eventually return to this place, to Palestine, right? 
and rebuild. And this is probably one of the favorite or top three prophecies in Christian identity, right? The uh, Obadiah prophecies, of course. But that clearly identifies who Esau is, who the Edomites, descendants of Canaanites are, right? It has to be the Jews because only they've returned and rebuilt Israel. Well, absolutely. That's Malachi chapter 1, I believe you're referring to, right? Well, where yeah. Esau would return and rebuild the waste places, the desolate places. And, and I'm convinced that's a prophecy of Christian Zionism. And, and what we see happening today, the, the people of Jacob are portrayed as showing concern for the descendants of Esau in Malachi chapter 1. And this is so descriptive of the attitude of Jews in modern history, where Yahweh God says, and I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Now, now that's probably going to lead me back to Isaiah chapter 34 before we end this. Well, well, it says, whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of wickedness, the people against whom Yahweh has indignation forever. Well, when was this fulfilled? This was not fulfilled since Malachi wrote it in antiquity, because Malachi was the, he was chronologically the last prophet of the Old Testament. He lived and wrote sometime after the temple in Jerusalem was newly rebuilt in 520 to 516 BC. And he evidently even lived after the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, under which the priesthood, the priests were, were, were um, chastised for beginning to race mix with the surrounding Canaanites. And Nehemiah and Ezra had forced the priests to reform themselves, to put off their strange wives, and to basically um, keep themselves pure and to keep the covenant. By the time of Malachi, the covenant was corrupted again. So it's apparent to me that Malachi must have written <clears throat> sometime after Ezra in the late 5th to early 4th century B.C., it's difficult to date the prophet precisely, but it must be circumstantially, it must be after the time of Nehemiah and then of Ezra, which has to be after 450 BC, basically. So Jerusalem was already rebuilt. This can't be talking about the second temple period. Yet it's a prophecy of Edomites returning and rebuilding the desolate places. 
and magnifying themselves. So Yahweh is promised to destroy them again. After the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, the city was occupied by Muslims, and they built their Dome of the Rock in the 7th century AD, perhaps the early 8th century AD. But this situation that the Israelites would have more concern for the Edomites than themselves, that wasn't, that did not exist in the 8th century AD when the Muslims were rebuilding Jerusalem and the children of Israel, who are the Europeans, weren't even concerned with the Muslims in the 8th century AD. The Crusades didn't start for another two, three hundred years. So, when were all of the elements of this prophecy, when were they all set in place? When can we say that this was fulfilled? And the only time we could say that is the 20th century and Christian-supported Zionism, which I call Christian Zionism. Because it's Christians that supported that this Jewish return to Palestine and rebuilding of the Israeli state, and that is Edom rebuilding the desolate places. Because Christ had told those Edomites who were in charge of Judea at his time that your house will be left to you desolate. And it was by the Romans in the late first and early second centuries when they destroyed it and ran the Jews out. So here Malachi must be talking, must be prophesying the 20th century because all of the elements of the prophecy are fulfilled and all of the circumstances are described in the 20th century. Yep, absolutely. Uh, so, so in summary, it should become very clear that only white Europeans fulfill the prophecy of being divorced, dispersed, never settling back. The fawns, uh, screech owls, jackals must be the Arabs, and Esau <coughs> must be the Jews who returned. Yeah, this point very clearly puts each people in perspective, right? Should be very clear for anyone. Well, absolutely. And, and here it speaks about the, um, the dragons inhabiting that, those desolate places. And, and the Nabataean Arabs, who were also mingled with Canaanites, that they had never really left that land. They were never driven out. They're still there today. The, many of the Edomites never really left the land. In, in Isaiah chapter 34... It, it's speaking about, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 13. Let, let's start there. It's speaking about Babylon. And it says that wild beasts shall dwell there, and, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures. Owls shall dwell there, and satyrs shall dance there. And, and then in Isaiah chapter 34, again, thorns shall come up in her palaces, Wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island, and the satyr shall cry to his fellow. The screech owl also shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. 
And these are all allegories for those people, those thorns and, and thistles that have possessed those places ever since the last white man was race mixed out of existence or, or killed by the Muslims. Yep. All right. Um, did you want to move on to the next point or um, do you have any other, uh, anything else you'd like to say, Bill? Well, I don't know if I can say anything else about the subject without repeating myself, but <laughs> I think we probably covered it sufficiently. I pray it, it was never meant for the, the divorced children of Israel to return to Palestine. I mean, and, and finally, under the British Empire, they retained a modicum of, that they regained, I should say, a modicum of political control over all those nations. But look at them today. What good did that do? It, it only made the situation much worse from, from a from a white perspective. Yeah, London's called London Stan now, right? <laughs> like as a semi-joke. Well, well, right. Instead of us taking over those lands again, that, that they're taking over our lands. <laughs> exactly. Okay, um, so, so the next point was um, a lot of people don't realize that many European nations, cities, and settlements you know, all throughout, they still bear Hebrew names, or at least they were based on Hebrew names originally, right? Well, well, there is evidence. There is a lot of evidence to that. And and this is um, the, the circumstances I've suffered the last two weeks. I'm, I'm probably not half as prepared for this point as I should be. But first this is that there are the obvious names like Denmark and Iberia. Denmark is named after the, the Danans, the Danes. And, and to me, understanding the seafaring Danans of antiquity and how they always maintain their name in, in the places where they settled, when they went to the Peloponnesus, that they were the Danae that the Greeks wrote about. So they maintained that name Dan in the Peloponnesus. And, and some, some transliterators, some English authors, when they transliterate that name Dane, that they or Danny, they write Danans. But in Greek, it's, it's Dane, D-A-N-A-E. The Sardinians, there are ancient inscriptions, ancient Phoenician inscriptions discovered in Sardinia that the original name of the island was Shardana. And a Shar in Hebrew is a remnant or a remainder or a part of something. And Sardinia or Shardana means remnant of Dan or portion of Dan. That's what it means in Hebrew. And it was called Shardana, and eventually that was Latinized into Sardinia or the Latin equivalent, which in English is Sardinia. 
so it, it's pretty clear that Shardana or, or portion of Dan or remnant of Dan is the original name of the island Sardinia. So if they brought their name to the Peloponnesus and to the island of Sardinia as they traveled, why wouldn't they bring it to other places? And in the Book of Invasions of, of Ireland, one of the first tribes, I think they were the second wave of people into Ireland recorded in the Book of Invasions, are the Tuatha de Danon, which can be translated as Tribe of Dan. So they brought their name to Ireland. And if they didn't come from the Mediterranean, where did they come from? And then you have the Danes. Iberia. The word Eber means to cross over. And Iberia clearly came, that name clearly came from, the, from Hebrew through the Israelites and, and called the Phoenicians, right? In, in Greek writings, who settled there at an early time. And, and the ships of Tarshish were going back and forth to Tartessus, a, a historically known region in the Mediterranean part in southeastern Spain. That was called Tartessus. Herodotus had spoke of how Tartessus, a city in that part of Spain, was an ancient trading town even before the days of the Trojan War. So those ships of Tarshish in Scripture were going back and forth to Tartessus, and so many Israelites had come to inhabit it that it was eventually called Iberia, which is a, a, a place that you cross over to in Hebrew. That word Iberia is attested in Greek literature in fragments of Polybius, book 35, which date as old as the 3rd century BC. So there was no diaspora of the Jews in the 3rd century BC, according to the Jews themselves. Does the I, name um, Heber, was he named that? because that was when they crossed over to the other side um, from Babylon? It, you know, because back then it was very important. They tended to name their sons after the circumstances they found themselves in or the circumstance of his birth. Well, well right, but in many cases the name also served as a prophecy rather oh, right, than yeah. just as circumstances. It, it's um, It's possible that the descendants of the Eber were among the first to cross over and, and to cross the Mediterranean, to, to cross over to a, a different country in, in the Palais. Yeah, that's what I meant. Just, just to add some context so people understand that, you know, Iberia, Hibernia, etc. it's the same to cross over. And, and the Patriarch was also called that for a reason. Well, right, and and from Iberia you cross over into Ireland, and that's Hibernia, which was an ancient name for Ireland, and and I, I believe from Scotland 
the nearest the, the nearest landmass is Scotland from the Hebrides, which also must be a, a crossing point in the Caucasus mountain region in the east between the Black and the Caspian Seas. Strabo describes an Iberia, and he actually describes two Iberias, one in which is modern Spain, and, and the other, which is north of the Caucasus. So the children of Israel in captivity crossing the Caucasus Mountains, the first land they settled, they called Iberia because it's over the mountains from Sacassene and Armenia where they had, what, which was one significant place that they had inhabited shortly after the Assyrian captivities. That there was a large district of Armenia, which Diodorus Siculus and Strabo both identify as Sacassene. I believe it's called one of the most fruitful places in Armenia. And it was a rather large district. So the fact that there were Scythians there is attested also in... Um, in Herodotus, as Cyrus, the king of Persia, crosses the Araxes River, which, which is in northern Media, in order to make war against the Scythians. So they definitely inhabited both sides of, of the Caucasus Mountains at an early time, and they were crossing over those mountains and, and called that place on the other side Iberia. It's the other side from Sacassene, just like Iberia in the West is the other side of the Mediterranean from Palestine, the opposite end, cross over the Mediterranean, and, and you get to Iberia, which is the other side. That's all it is. That's what the Is word... there anything with um, uh, the British Isles where they were called Albion? Uh, that, that's the white shores, right, of Cornwall? Is that a Greek word or is that Hebrew? It, it's difficult for me to tell because there was also, I believe, an Albion in, in um, the Roman language, apart from that, which I believe became Albania. So it's difficult for me to um, get the precise origination of that word. It may have been Roman. I'm not sure. I don't think it was Greek. There, there are other place names in Britain, um, Britain and Ireland, Cardiff and Carlisle in Britain are named similarly to the ancient Phoenician city of Carthage. All of these were originally two words. Carthage is the Romanized spelling of Phoenician words meaning new city which is Kiryah Hadesh. So, however, Kiryah Hadesh is the closest I could get to the way that the Hebrews may have pronounced their words meaning new city. So, however they did pronounce it, because I'm sure they did it better than I can, Kiryah Hadesh was Romanized as Carthage, in the same manner, the Greeks had several cities named Neapolis, Neapolis, new city. So the Hebrews had 
even before the Greeks ever had a Neapolis, the Hebrews had Kirya Hadesh, which means new city, which was ultimately spelled in Latin as Carthage. And we do the same thing today, like New York, New Jersey, uh, New Wales. You know, we always right. do that, just right. the simplicity. Right? Naples, actually, the word, the name for Naples is actually a contraction of Neapolis. It became elided into Naples. Well, at one time, there were many other places in Britain, beginning with that Hebrew word for a town or city, which is transliterated as car or care, C-A-E-R, or, or just C-A-R. And Cardiff and Carlisle are two of those places where the name ha has um, stayed through history, has endured, right? And, and I believe there were at one time several dozen places named in that manner in Britain. Yeah, I got a list. Um, I could just name like just ones that people, you know, in America would recognize like um, Manchester. It used to be car. I'm going to butcher this Mongood and it just became Manchester. Um, let me just look. You got York, which was car Ebrook. So, so you can see it just completely. Some of the names just completely changed. Right. Uh, there was Leicester, which was car Lerion. Uh, you, you know, and I could list many more, but you get the point that, that some of the name, most of the names changed. It's just Cardiff that stayed the same where you can still kind of trace it. Right. And, and these names, they're not Latin. That These names predated by centuries the Roman invasion of Britain. Yeah, it clearly comes from the Hebrew. Yes, that the, the Hebrew word for city is... Kyria, and, and there's a shorter masculine form of that word. Kyria is feminine, and the, the masculine form is just kir. So it, it I found be... another one. Um, Kent used to be car Kent, so it must have just got shortened to Kent for simplicity. Right, I'm sure. Once the Anglo-Saxons came, they... They shortened and renamed all those places. There's another set of names, and, and that this can be debated. I don't think it can be debated. I think that the, the um, modern interpreters simply don't want to admit it. That's my opinion. Bell, Belfast, Belgrade, Bel Air. Well, in the Bible, we have places in Palestine called Baal Barith, Baal Hazor, Baal Hanan, Baal Herman, Baal Gad, and, and many others. This also is, in, is found in Babylonia, what, where Aramaic was the predominant language, that there were places named after Baal or Bel. Now, some sources claim that the word Bel meant a ford, I'm not convinced with that. There are many other places in Ireland which have names beginning in Bell, Bal, or Bally, B-A-L-L-Y. There's a lot that begin in Bally. And it's said that Bally is from a Gaelic phrase which means town. But that may also be more than a coincidence because that word Bal 
with, with a name, that could be taken to mean town, but it could really refer to the idol, which the Celts worship that sun god Bel, which is equated to Baal in, in Babylonia. So Bali may have come to mean town, but for that reason, that's my opinion. Beltane. Beltane is the Gaelic May Day festival associated with the maypole, which certainly seems to have originally been a phallic symbol, although that relation is also denied by modern neo-pagans. But in some places in Europe, the maypole is employed in courting rituals. So I would assert that it certainly was originally a phallic symbol. It takes a long time to investigate a name, and I've never made an effort to systematically investigate each name of every old town and village in Western Europe. But one day, I received an inquiry from a friend who knows Greek very well, and he mentioned that the Feast of Carnia, which was an ancient Spartan festival, was called Carnia because Carno meant ram and that it was related to a Hebrew word and the name of the Israelite city, Ashtaroth Karnaim. Now, I investigated that, and Karnaim, as it's spelled in the King James Version, is a dual-form noun. Um, the Hebrews and also the early Greeks had a dual form of their nouns. And in English, we only have singular and plural, where singular is, um, say, table. Table is singular, and it refers to one table, where tables is plural. We just throw that S on the end of the word. Well, in Hebrew and in early Greek, because there are only vestiges of this in Koine Greek, they had a dual form of their nouns. So you would have not only singular and plural, you would have one form denoting the singular, one form denoting two of something, and a third form denoting a plural. So carnaim, with that I-M on the end of it, is carna with an I-M added denoting two, not just one horn, but two. So Ashtaroth Carnaim is a city of Ashtaroth of the two horns. That's what it means. Carnaim comes from a Hebrew word, which means horn. So it means two horns. It appears in scriptures only in Genesis chapter 14, verse 5. The Carnia festival was held in honor of Apollo. And Apollo was seen as the patron or protector of shepherds and herds. According to the ninth edition of Liddell and Scott's Greek-English lexicon, Carnos, K-A-R-N-O-S, is a ram, and Carnon is a horn in Greek. 
So I would be confident to say that the word is definitely cognate with this Hebrew word, karnaim, or, or karno, which is a horn. Now, in Wales, in Welsh, and Liddell and Scott in their lexicon also mention this, there is a Celtic word, karnux, K-A-R-N-U-X, which appeared in certain Greek writings, and that is also equivalent to karnon, which is horn in, in ancient Greek. So today we have a karnix. It's spelled C-A-R-N-Y-X in our modern language. But that karnix is an ancient Celtic war trumpet. And it was originally made from an animal's horn. Just like the horn that the Jews, modern Jews, call a shofar. But the shofar wasn't always called a shofar. In Joshua chapter 6, verse 5, the ram's horn, with which men make a long blast, is a kern or karen, spelled with the Hebrew letters Q-R-N. But some European countries with the Phoenician alphabet eventually dropped the letter Q and replaced it with a K. And that included the Greeks. The Greeks didn't have a Q. They dropped it. The cough. They dropped it in favor of a K and started spelling words that use that Q with a K instead. So we see QRN or kern in the root for carnix, carnos, carnon, the carnia, and the word for the modern horn, the cornet, although today they're made of brass and not from an, an, an animal's horn. So we have this, this, um, this festival in Sparta and this place in Wales and this horn, this ancient Welsh horn, all named after the same word, which is a Hebrew word for horn. There are many um, little connections like that, which can be put together. If we sit and examine each place name, each ancient place name, and investigate where the name could have originated, a lot of times we will have to go back to the Hebrew. And, and it's too often to be coincidental. I don't know if there's more I could yeah, say the, about uh, that. The Jews and pagans always dismiss it as a coincidence or nonsense, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. What? What, what when, do you think of um, how, Zaragoza, how many the city Zaragoza in uh, Spain? Um, of course, we don't know the exact voyages that, um, you know, the, the Israelites took the ones who didn't go with Moses in the Exodus and eventually ended up in Greece. Uh, but it's possible that a city, you know, that's close enough to Zara's, you know, timeline, or at least his grandsons that might have named, uh, you know, the city Gosa after Zara, Zaragoza in Spain or Iberia at the time, right? Right. Zaragoza or, or Zaragoza is a very ancient city in Spain. 
it's it's long been connected with this tribe of Zara. Without a doubt, it was inhabited when the Romans came into Iberia, it was inhabited by a tribe of ancient Iberians called in Roman sources the Sedetani. So it it seems um, very possible that the name could be related to the same word for the tribe of, of Zara in Palestine. Zara means rising in Hebrew. So it's it it's um yeah, you know, we can't really put our finger on all of the history. This is prehistoric. But Strabo had Strabo of Cappadocia had described how the Iberians had scriptures. Thousands of lines of scripture, thousands of verses, six thousand verses of scripture, which they esteemed to be sacred. And Strabo described that. That that's explained somewhere at, in, in my papers at Christogenia. It's explained and it's cited. That there's no doubt that the early Iberians, the pre-Roman Iberians, had retained a lot of their cultural connections to the East. No doubt in my mind. So it's very possible that cities like Zaragoza do have a, that their names do have a Hebrew origin, are betrayed, um, the names betray a Hebrew background. And I'm sure there are many others. It just yeah. takes a long time. And, and to, also, um, sorry. I'm sorry, it takes a long time to research each individual name. It, it could take hours or sometimes even longer, days. Yeah, and I was just going to say, even, even though we've mentioned it before, that obviously the Welsh were called Kimri, so after Chimerian, so, so, and their language, or at least the Gaelic language, is very close to Hebrew, which, you know, add, adding on top of uh, all these city names and places, it's very, cl very clear that these are the Israelites, right? Absolutely. What well, once you... Once you understand how languages work, right? We have this word Kimmerians, and, and that's the Latin form that a lot of people pronounce that Latin C as a soft C, like an S, right? They might think Cimmerians, but the original is Kimmerians, and in Greek, that is Kimmeroi, K-I-M-M-E-R-O-I, which is a plural ending. The Greeks put their own endings on words in order so that they could conjugate them. And, and the Romans basically did the same thing. They put their own endings on foreign words. And so did the, so did, so did the English. The Kimmeroi, of course, the Cymru, the Kimmeroi, there's no doubt in ancient history, it's absolutely certain in the inscriptions. This is not a stretch by any by anyone's imagination that, that this is written in stone, basically written in clay tablets, that the Qumri were the children of Israel. And that's who the Greeks identified as Kimmeroi. And you could take the words of Herodotus in his descriptions of the Chimerians, the Kimeroi, and the Assyrian tablets 
and their mentions of the Kimroy and put them right together and see that without a doubt, they're the same people. And these Kimroy were among the first waves of the Germanic tribes into Europe. And it's told in the ancient Greek records that they settled in um, what we know today is Germany. And they made war with the Romans all the way down to like the first century BC. They were making war with the Romans, maybe even later than that. So, and, and these Germanic tribes were identified as Kimroy by the Greeks, but that's because when the Greeks first became familiar with them, Assyrian language was the lingua franca, that the common tongue of the ancient world at that time. So the Greeks called them by the name that the Assyrians called them. The Cymri, or in Greek, that was transliterated as Kimroy. When they passed to Britain, they maintained that name as Kimri. And it's spelled a little different, but it's pronounced almost the same. C-Y-M-R-Y, Kimri. So they retained that name, Kumri, the house of Amri, which the Assyrians had, had first given them. That, that's um, very believable. And they appeared in Britain probably by the 4th century B.C., now, there were other people in Britain. There were Phoenician settlements in Britain. And, and who knows who else? Because there were other tribes. There were Jepetai tribes that also made colonies in, in various parts of Europe. So there may have been other people besides the Phoenicians in Britain. But the Kimri invaded Britain probably about the 4th century BC, about the same time that other Kimri, who had by that time been known as Galatahi or Gauls, had sacked Rome, 390 BC. Do you have any idea why, um, if you're to believe you know, the legends that there was an Arthur who fought against the Saxons' invasions, but why they used the title Pendragon, which was like the head... Um, you know, the head war chief in times of war, they'd all come together and elect a pen dragon who would lead them. But but why they had dragon in there? I've always found that strange if they were Israelites. That, that's if you're to believe the legend. Well, well okay. I'm going to be honest. I really haven't read any of the oldest. I, I don't know if there is original literature surviving. I doubt it. That there's only the um, the legends handed down by 8th and 9th century writers, medieval British writers, right? Um, maybe Williams, William of Malmesbury or, or somebody like that. I haven't read that all of that literature. So I really cannot comment on that. Honestly, I can't. I, I haven't read any of the original okay, no literature or, or the oldest literature of the Arthurian legends. I haven't gotten to it yet in my life. <laughs> Maybe someday. <laughs> well, when I made my um, Christian identity studies, I purposely read nothing any later than Procopius, 6th century AD. I read Bede. That's one exception. I had read Sharon Turner's History of the anglo -Saxons. Yeah, and you can see how he tried to spin everything to make the Catholic Church, uh, you know, look good. 
Yes, he did. But he also he always talked about that 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 um Celtic church basically that was in, in competition with the Catholic Church in Britain, in, in Anglo Saxon England, I should call it, right? He always spoke of that. So we see that there was a, a, a Christian church in Britain long before the Roman Catholic Church. And and that didn't agree with the Roman Catholic Church on many issues. Although Bede focuses on that dating of Easter in his talks about the, the disagreements between the two churches. He he he, he was fixated with the dating of Easter and defending the Roman Catholic dating of Easter. Bede was strange. He was strange, but reading Bede is valuable. Well, if anything, it shows you that the church wanted total control, right? Absolutely. Irenaeus, that the, the difference in the dating of Easter, the reckoning of the Easter festival goes back all the way to Irenaeus, and, and he differed with the later traditional Roman Catholics. Well, that All feeds right. into um, the discussion. The next point? Um, yeah, right. Well, this feeds right into it, that this discussion of the um, the Kimri feeds right into it, so I think. Yeah, so um, 28, that would be the Scottish Declaration of Arbroath. Um, you know, you know, today a lot of people they never actually go and actually read it properly. Uh, what what said they'll just have, always have like vague recollections, or they'll just hear what they're taught as called. But when you actually study the words clearly, it, it can identify that the Scots believed they were Israelites, right? They even put the dating from the Exodus. Well, who would do that except the children of Israel, right? Well, well, right. It makes no sense to, to do it unless you believe that you're connected to it. I'm going to read the portion what which I, I, do, I do believe declares the Scots to be of the children of Israel. This is the Declaration of Abroth was actually made under the leadership of Robert de Bruce, I believe, right? who was famously misportrayed in the movie Braveheart, if I'm not mistaken. He was portrayed in the very... Yeah, yeah, and um, Edward I is absolutely but butchered as the most evilest man alive. I, I think that's because he kicked the Jews out of England that they make him an absolute villain always. I, I believe that. I do. <laughs> I believe that they purposely misportrayed these um, great British men in, in in Braveheart, even though it was a great movie, it, it was the last movie that I've seen completely. It, it's I haven't watched a movie since, but I remember it. It, it was a great movie, but I might have different views of it today. But Robert Bruce was seen was portrayed as an evil, self-centered traitor, basically, to William Wallace and. Edward I was portrayed pretty poorly also. And and didn't they try to make it look like he was he was a, a sodomite? I think uh, his son, his son, um Edward the Second. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
Yes. So, so Edward the first actually um, was a crusader, right? He led one of the crusades, and and then he come back. And I believe Robert the Bruce, or maybe his father or grandfather, was actually with Edward. So, so they did, you know, they did have a common connection, just out of it of context. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, and I don't. I mean, I watched this movie in 1991. It was. I would be a lot more historically curious about it if I'd seen it more recently, right? It may have been 91. It may have been 90 or 89 or something. I don't remember. Okay, that's a digression. I'm going to read the portion of the Declaration of Arbroath as, as it's popularly translated, which I believe declares the Scots to be of the children of Israel. So this is only part of it. Most Holy Father and Lord... We know, and from the Chronicles and books of the ancients, we find that among other famous nations, our own, the Scots, has been graced with widespread renown. They journeyed from greater Scythia by way of the Tyrrhenian Sea and the Pillars of Hercules, and dwelt for a long course of time in Spain among the most savage tribes. But nowhere could they be subdued by any race, however barbarous. Thence they came, 1,200 years after the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea, to their home in the West, where they still live today. The Britons they first drove out. The Picts they utterly destroyed. And even though very often assailed by the Norwegians, the Danes and the English, they took possession of that home with many victories and untold efforts, and as the historians of old time bear witness, they have held it free of all bondage ever since. And, and this is basically an, a declaration and an appeal to liberty from the rule of the English, right? that they want to be free of English rule and believe they have a right to be independent of the English. This declaration was made in the early 14th century, in 1320 A.D. So, according to these um, Scots themselves, a 1st century B.C. or early 1st century A.D. arrival for the Scots in Scotland is fair. The Roman historian Tacitus, evidently writing in reference to the Picts in the first century AD, said that the appearance of the tall, red-haired Caledonians of his time had betrayed their origins in Scythia. In other words, he's saying that these Caledonians came from Scythia. They are are in appearance just like the tribes of the Scythians who were Germans, right, in, in Tacitus's mind, and that they look like they came from Scythia, have, being tall and, and with red hair. But the history, I must say that the history of 12th and 13th century Scotland is unreliable and it is often debated. There were independent Pictish kings whose chronicles still survive who ruled over the Scots in the 9th and 10th centuries. 
And during this period, these Pictish kings were continually fighting with Scandinavian invaders who were also invading England and Ireland. In the 10th century, the kingdom of Alba united the Picts and the Scots. I believe one of the earliest kings was Kenneth McAlpin. And after that time, the kingdom of Alba eventually became known as Scotland. And however this played out, because I haven't studied the literature of the period, and it is difficult to determine which of the diverse sources to trust, the Scots must have eventually become the dominant force within the new kingdom. And the Picts were... Do you think that name Scotland, originally it was Scofia? Do you think that's related to Scythia, Sophia? I mean, it's only the vowel, the O and the Y. Well, well I, I mean, yes, it could be. It could be, but it, it's difficult to tell how long the Scots had that name. To me, it is. Yeah. I, I, I really think, I really believe that what we have here in the Declaration of Aberoth is a confounding of the histories of two different people. The Caledonians and other Scots, or Picts, if you will, who did come from Scythia, who crossed over the northern sea from Scythia into what we know today as Scotland. And Tacitus is right about that. I sincerely believe that. But I also believe that a different branch of these Scots, who, who may have been the original Scots, had actually come from Spain into Ireland and eventually passed into Scotland. So I think that we have a confounding of two different histories from two diverse peoples that, that's mingled together and presented in this Declaration of Arbroath. Now, I can't prove that, <coughs> but examining that the history that I do know, that's a conclusion that I've come to. But there's no and doubt... And the name Picks, I believe that's the name... Sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, but there's no doubt to me that they are associating themselves to one degree or another with these ancient Israelites as they mention that they came to Scotland 1,200 years after the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea. That Now, that amount of time isn't quite accurate, but it's loosely accurate enough, right? Because the children of Israel actually crossed the Red Sea about 1450 BC. If they understood that, then they're saying that they came to Scotland about 200 BC or, or in the third century BC. Yeah, I, I was going to say that the name Picts, I believe the Romans were the ones who gave them that name, and that was where the Britons tended to paint their face blue, you know, to make themselves seem scary and like warfare. And, you know, is it, they could just have um, named various tribes just all grouped together as the Picts, when it was just because they painted their face, right? Yes, the, the word Pict is a Roman name. 
that the that the it it seems to have um, stayed with the picts if the literature is accurate, but that's hard to tell. I, I would want to go back and investigate all of the original literature I could before I formulated a, a definite opinion. Something else I've never had a chance to do, just like the Arthurian legends. I stayed okay. to um, throughout my. What about Throughout my identity studies, I, I stayed to um, Roman and Greek historical sources because I could get copies of the original or as close as we could get to the original sources. And, and I had a, from the Loeb Classical Library, there's a wealth of that. It, it's that there was an incredible amount of ancient and, and original Greek and Roman writers. When I say original, I mean somebody writing about their own time and contemporary events. There's a wealth of that in Greek and, and Latin in reference to the, the lands occupied by the Greeks in the, in the Roman Empire. But there's a, a dearth of it in English history concerning the, the, the Bretons or, or the pre-Anglo-Saxon British and, and the Anglo-Saxons themselves, it, it's very difficult to locate anything of true antiquity. And, and I still don't have good sources to this day. I mean, I, I, I don't know where to turn. It's very hard to find original sources of anything actually ancient in, in Britain. So what you have is you have a mixing of traditions. I had the four masters, which are the famous, the most famous for Irish historians of the medieval period, um, maybe 15th, 16th century, century in there, 17th century in, in there. And, and that's about as good as we could get for Ireland. And, and they repeat a lot of old legends, but some of them conflict with each other, and it's hard to tell what the actual truth is. Okay, I'm digressing. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say, I've got one more legend, but at least this one, um, the main thing is accurate, and that was that King Edward I, you know, the guy who kicked out the Jews, the, the evil guy, he went in and stole their stone. He went into Scotland and this was um, whenever a king was knighted in Scotland, they would use this stone and Edward took it and took it back to London. Uh, but but there's rumours that this is the stone that uh, our forefather, all of, all, of our, all of our people, our forefather Jacob, you know, the stone he slept on, that, uh, where he had the dream of the ladder and all that, and that it eventually ended up to Ireland, to Scotland, and then in England. Do, do you think there's anything to that? Well, well, that stone is called the Stone of Scone. Yeah, Stone of Destiny, Stone of Scone, yeah. Okay. And and I believe the English have recently returned it to Glasgow. Didn't it come to... Yeah, apparently um, it, it was stolen when Queen Elizabeth was to be um, uh, knighted on it, uh, coronated on it, sorry. Interesting. It was stolen. I thought it was in Glasgow. I, I, I don't know. That, that was just the impression I had. But that's interesting. It was stolen. Yeah, you know, I've seen descriptions of that stone 
by early um, British Israel writers who claimed that the stone had had um, markings on it, like it was carried with the chain for a long period of time, but the chain's now missing, that the stone um, had to be of great antiquity. There's no doubt that it, it existed and was kept, I believe, under the throne, right, of the kings of England for, for a very long time. But only from the time that James V of Scotland became King James I of England was it brought to London. So the stone is from the Scots and of great antiquity. Now, does that prove that it was Jacob's stone, that it was Jacob's pillar? <sighs> no, I, I wouldn't even go there. I really wouldn't. I, I wouldn't go there without documentation. And, and I've never seen the documentation. E. Raymond yeah. Capt has a... Has well, that's a, where they say, where Jeremiah took it to Ireland, that they try and trace it that way, usually. Yes, I understand that. But I would love to see the documentation of that. And all of the early British Israel writers um, mention or who mention and discuss this stone and that includes E. Raymond, e. Raymond Capt. I never really saw them cite anything that I could put my hands on and read from antiquity. I was always disappointed with that. I don't know if I'm explaining that appropriately, but I've never seen like book, chapter, verse, where, where can I go read about this? I haven't seen it. They were terrible with citations. So if there's literature, I would like it. That, that explains that. I would like it. I would like to be able to read it for myself. But I don't know. I don't even know if that's possible. No, usually they'll um, have a, a few citations here and there, and then they'll add something to connect them. And, and that bit in between... You, you know, it's unreliable, and you're kind of just weaving this story together. Right, so I think we have to be really careful with that. I really do. I, I mean, it's intriguing, don't get me wrong. Um, these stories of Olam Fodla, this prophet that came to Ireland in early times and brought this stone with him and brought these um, young women with him who he married off to the Kings of the Malaysians. It, it's a wonderful romance story that the British Israel and early Christian identity writers did um, employ and romanticize in their descriptions. This a um, that this book was sold by early Christian identity publishers for a long time. I believe Artisan Publishers still publishes this book. It's called the Book of Tefi. And a lot of identity Christians had picked up this book of Tefi and actually thought that it was of great antiquity. But in truth, the book of Tefi is a romance that was composed in the late 19th century in Britain. It, it has no antiquity whatsoever and no sources. So it does a say. And that's connected to the Hill of Tara, right? The, the Tefi, the whole Tefi story? Yes. Yes, it repeats that. 
I believe the, le- the, the, the legend is probably ancient. I don't think the legend itself proves any connection to ancient Hebrews. That's why I stay away from that stuff. I stay away from that stuff until I see um, ancient or at least more original documentation. So I think we have to be careful because there are no proofs there. I'd rather be private. Yeah, and just as we were saying at the start of the show, right, um, Renegade Tribune, is it? They'll pick up on that and mark us. Right, they do. A lot of what British, yeah, you know, British Israel, what which we should really call like British identity, right? British Israel began with the archaeology that was coming out of the British Empire in the middle of the 19th century, the discoveries of men like Sir Henry Layard that were digging these Assyrian tablets out of the ground, and and, um, another one was Henry Rawlinson, Sir Henry Rawlinson, and who, who had, he was an officer in the British Army, but most British army officers were highly educated men. He himself was highly educated, and he was able to decipher the Behistun rock inscriptions. And he was able to do that because it was written in three languages. And one of those languages being Aramaic, that gave him an understanding of the meaning of a lot of the words in the corresponding languages. And one of them was Akkadian, which is the language of the ancient Assyrians. So from the multilingual inscriptions, we were able to learn to read Assyrian cuneiform. And the information coming from those inscriptions had given birth to what became known as British Israel. The understanding that these Anglo-Saxon, these Germanic tribes that had migrated, as we see in all the ancient Greek and Roman records, had migrated from Asia into Europe from the 5th century BC down to the 5th or 6th centuries AD, that they had originated with the Saka, these Kimri, Kimroi, these ancient Israelites of the captivities. So British Israel started out on relatively firm ground of ancient history and inscriptions. And all of these romantic nuances and romantic notions were added later, which basically discredited it that they can't be proven, they're asserted as fact, they're presented as fact, but they can't be proven. So they serve to discredit us when we repeat them as fact. And and that's something I realized quite early in, in my own Christian identity studies, that all these added things, that they have to be set aside or, or shed completely because they can't be proven. Even if there are elements of truth in them, because a lot of these ancient legends, I believe, do reflect um, actual events, 
even if there are elements of truth in them, it doesn't give us license to romanticize and elaborate on these legends and, and call it historical truth. It's not necessarily true. It, once we go through that process, it, it becomes a fable. What well, we have enough hurdles to prove our origins to our people without repeating fables, which actually only serve as stumbling blocks in the end. That these clowns, these anti-Christian clowns at Renegade Radio and places like that can exploit in order to undermine that truth. I wouldn't, so I would never go there. Which is why you don't see any of that repeated at Christagenia. Yeah, and all those uh, publishers, they love those books because they can uh, make a lot of money constantly selling them, right? Like the um, Teffy story and all that. Absolutely. I had um, Kingdom Identity Ministries sent me a book by mistake back in, I don't remember, 2000, 2001, I don't remember. And I wanted a copy of E. Raymond Katz, Abrahamic Covenant, which has a mistake or two in it, but it's pretty good. And instead, I got a book with the same title by a different author that was pure universalist garbage. It was trash. And I still have it here in my library. I, I have a little box in my back office called Trash Books, and it's in there with Eli James's books and a few others, right? So <laughs> I, I, um, I wrote them a letter, and I said, I told them, I can't understand why you're selling this book. It, it's, and, and I explained my opinion of the book, and... They never answered. They never answered. But they're still selling that book to this day. If it's making money for them, they're going to keep selling it. They don't care what it says. I'm convinced. Yeah, it's sad, really, isn't it? Absolutely. I don't know if you want to move on to the um, the next point. Yep, next point. So 29 Christian churches worldwide only in white nations or at least nations that were formerly white, and then there's a few bastards living there now who claim that that's, you know, they built it or their ancestors built it, right? But I mean, everywhere you go, you know, no matter whether it's Europe, America, Australia, you go to a little village, a town, a city, there's just churches everywhere. Um, you know, or in some places, almost every street, there used to be a church of some sort, right? Well, well, right. I mean, that there's the Coptic Church that they love to speak of the Coptic Church in Egypt. But the Coptic Church, what was white Macedonian Greeks in Alexandria, and Alexandria always had a large population of um, Judeans. Whether they were Edomite Jews or Israelite Judeans is debatable. Um, they probably were a mix of both, just like Judea was a mix of both. But the Coptic church in Egypt started out as that the Egyptians at the time were Macedonian Greeks who had all moved in, uh, into Egypt. The, the Ptolemies were the rulers of, of um, Egypt, and, and they were Macedonians. And the people were pre predominantly 
Macedonian or Judean in Alexandria. And that Coptic church was not meant for these alien mixed Negro mongrels who inhabit Egypt today. There's, a, that there's also an Ethiopia trick. And, and this is really a trick. It, it's a deception. Where the universalists use the history of Christianity in Ethiopia to fool silly modern white Europeans into thinking that Africa should have ever been Christian. There are only two periods of church building in Ethiopia. And those two periods, the earlier one dates to no later than the 6th century AD. And the second period dates to no earlier than the 16th century AD. Now, there were churches built by the 6th century AD before the Muslim conquest, right? in Ethiopia, and those churches exist today. There are several of them, and the artwork found in those 6th century churches, 6th century or earlier, perhaps, because the actual history of these churches is lost, right? It's gone. The artwork found in those early churches depict Christ and his apostles and other early Christians as having been white. Although there are a few that seem to have some Arab influences, they were white in this artwork. They were not black. We do not see blacks depicted in Ethiopian church art until the second period of Ethiopian church building. But that wasn't native to the Ethiopians. Those churches, which date from the 16th century, were built by Jesuits. Modern Ethiopian Christianity is not authentic. It is not truly ancient, but rather it is a relic of 16th century European colonization. These Jesuits coming into Ethiopia and building churches for the Ethiopians and organizing a priesthood for these Ethiopians, that's European colonization. If the Ethiopians were truly Christians all along, they would not have needed Jesuit assistance to build their churches or to organize their communities. So Ethiopian, truly Ethiopian Christianity basically died out in the 6th century. By then, all of the people were bastardized, and then they were overrun with the Muslims. They didn't build another church until the Jesuits came in the 16th century. So this concept that Westerners have of Ethiopian Christians it is basically at a deception, because for a thousand years that they weren't Christian at all. Otherwise, why would the Jesuits had to have to bring Christianity to them again? And there's a lot of evidence that the order Jesuits were Jews, right, conversos, and that they had a, a plan to 
convert the world into Christian, make it a big universal religion. Absolutely. At, at least many of the original founding Jesuits or early Jesuits were converso Jews. I don't know if all of them were, but many of them were. And of course, they sucked in Europeans into their ranks to get European Christians on their side. And that was their plan. They went to China. They were thrown out of China, I believe, in the 14th century, 15th century. The Chinese ejected them. That they were with the Spaniard, the Spanish conquistadors in Spain. Um, the, they were behind one of the forces behind the forced conversions of of the Aboriginal tribes in South America and Mexico. The Jesuits were also behind a lot of the forced reconversions of the Counter-Reformation in Europe, where nations and, and peoples that had sided with the Protestants were brought back to the Catholic Church. The Jesuits wanted to rule the world through the Catholic Church, yes. Yeah, I believe that's how they convinced the popes, right, that uh, after the Reformation, that there was a need of this Jesuit order to counter the Protestants. And then they stabbed the Catholic Church in the back with this treachery, right? But, well, yeah, I believe so. Uh, I mean, missionary trips into Africa certainly is treachery, no doubt. And, and it's been a drain on Christian people in the West for 500 years now. But it has never permanently improved the state of any of these Negro Africans. For several centuries, they were eating the missionaries that were sent to them. And there are records of that. Yeah, yeah, they still do it today, right? <laughs> when they can, when they could get away with it, when there are no more gifts to be given, they turn. Africa will never be Christianized. And if it were, it would stand on its own. If it were truly Christianized in the 6th century, it would, it would have stood on its own. And it didn't. And it never will. Yeah, and then you have all these churches in like South America where, where they try and claim that they're Christian or, or, in, or in Mexico. But, but as you said, obviously it hasn't worked out for them, right? No, it's never worked. It's never really flourished. It, it's that they might go to church and and worship baby Jesus and and they really worship the Virgin Mary every Sunday, but they haven't um, enjoyed the fruits which the development of a Christian society should produce, which Europeans have. And then you have um, Christianity was taught in all white schools. It was part of our curriculum. It always has been even, uh, you know, taught at home, passed on by parents to children. Um, it's always been part of our traditions entwined into war, our beliefs. And you don't find that in any other race at all, right? Right. Until the end of the 19th century, white children learned to read from the Bible. That was their first book. That was their reader. They didn't need another reader. Which yeah, is and it's actually, gradually been purged by the Jews, like, well, little yes. by little, until they finally got rid of it. Yes, it, it took until the 1950s, I believe, in America for the Jews to finally get the Bible out of schools 
and, and get prayer out of schools. But look at the schools today. Today they're all like little Africa's. <laughs> that they're and all then you have, um, sorry. That they're all a reflection of ancient Ethiopia, which was white and turned black. That's all of our schools today. <laughs> yeah, all declined. And then, and then you have, um, okay, I know marriage, you know, it shouldn't be in a church with a priest, but, but regardless, all Christian marriages, funerals, uh, all the markings on graves and tombstones, it was all Christians, right? That there were verses, people had their favorite verse they wanted on their tombstone. The funerals, they had, you know, verses they'd read out. Uh, mar marriages, same thing. It's all been Christian, again, all part of our society, right? But, right. I mean, Christianity is so deeply embedded into our society, our culture, uh, our habits, our laws, that, that people, white people growing up today and distracted from or, or diverted from Christianity by pop culture don't have any conception of how much Christianity has shaped their worldview and enabled them to grow into adults and develop. They have no conception of that because they're totally ignorant of how Christianity was ingrained into society as the Germanic tribes and, and the other tribes of Europe were Christianized. And, and accepted Christianity and, and began to produce laws based on Christian ethics and principles. And those laws have been with us ever since in one form or another. Our entire society. Yeah, like the idea that everyone's entitled to, um, you know, innocent until proven guilty, that people have rights, you know, all these things, it comes from the, the Bible, right? Well, Absolutely. And, and even Paul of Tarsus had commended the Romans for that very principle in his epistle to the Romans in chapter 2. But those things that the, um, the right to be heard and, and tried and convicted only by the mouth of two or three reliable witnesses, and many of these... Um, Ancient ethics come directly from the scripture and, and were not part of our race before we had the scriptures. And then you have um, all, all our governments, they originally had to swear oaths on the Bible, you know, before they were sworn in. Like I believe even the president would swear an oath on the Bible. Of course, now uh, it's slowly changing. But, but when have you ever seen a, a chink swear on the Bible or, a, you know, a voodoo, uh, a witch doctor do that, etc.? Well, right. I, I mean, Christianity being a part of, of an, an important part of, of Christian culture, of European culture for 2,000 years, if anyone understands what the scripture says about the people of God, you cannot separate the scriptures from Europe. You cannot, we have no concept 
of how hard, how wicked in many ways even the pre-Christian pagan world was. Even in Europe, the pre-Christian world what was would be completely alien to any modern Christian today. It, if you read the Eddas, the, these pagans read the Eddas, and, and I don't think they really even understand how harsh life would be in the world of the Eddas, in the world, the pagan world described by the Eddas. What, where the Swedish king can sacrifice nine of his own sons so that he could have 10 more years of life and rule for each son that he sacrifices. So he sacrifices nine of his own sons so that he could live for 90 years longer. And, and that's, that, that, that reflects a lot of the attitude of the men of the Eddas who, who live for themselves, for their own enrichment, who have no care even for their own children, and would do anything to gratify their own lusts and, and their own desires to the point where that they had no concern at all for their people that the ancient pagan heroes were only self-absorbed vultures, basically. That's how I see them. And, and if you want to, that this depiction we have in modern society, especially in the online world of memes of the Jew, and the behavior of the Jew well, you could go back to the Eddas and, and see all of those same um, negative characteristics or wicked characteristics in the heroes of the Eddas, of the ancient pagans. And, and the same is true of the Greek gods and goddesses. Yeah, they were always in warfare and they would conquer uh, land or a village and enslave the whole population, right? Uh, they even had a word, a frol, and, and that a frol had no rights at all. It was essentially warlords with a few free men around them and everyone else was just slaves and they were treated terribly. And it's only with Christianity that we see where everybody has this freedom of rights, right? Where, um, you know, you know, where women can just walk around and not be molested. That's, that's a Christian thing. And, and they completely don't realize that it's only because of Christianity that they can walk around unmolested, right? Right. Absolutely. That because in the ancient world, women were sheltered, they were kept at home, they weren't allowed out of the house without their man, without male escort, uh, either a father or a brother, because they would be raped. They would be kidnapped and raped. They would be kidnapped and taken to a strange land or a strange city. They had no police to call. That they had no cell phone to take video uh, of their rape that they had no recourse whatsoever in the pagan world. And and the town that the woman was taken to, that they had no qualms about it. They had no reason to protest. So you could go to the to a county away, two counties away, snatch some girl up off the streets, bring her back to your town. That girl had no way to contact anybody to appeal for help. 
and you could keep her in in your house or on your farm and use her as your sex slave and throw her away after 10 years when you're tired of her. And there was absolutely no laws nor any um, societal construct in place to prevent you from doing that. The Greeks wrote about the Phoenicians looting the women from their shores. And the Greeks did the same thing. Herodotus opened his histories with, with descriptions of that. Basically, to relate it to the taking of Helen of Troy from the house of Menelaus, the king of Sparta, by Alexandros, or Paris, as he's known in the, to the Romans, the prince of Troy. And, and that was the event which supposedly precipitated the Trojan Wars. That this Trojan prince came to Greece to visit this Greek king and stole his wife and brought her back to Troy. <laughs> and the Trojans <laughs> had no problem with that until the Bannon ships hit the shore and their city was under siege. And even then they defended them. So they'd rather go to war than give up a stolen woman. The, the entire moral structure of the pagan world was completely different and alien to what we perceive today. And, and these neo-pagans and, and these Asatru and, and these other, um, I can only call them clowns, that they have no idea the horrors that they would exist in if it weren't for the fact that Europe became a Christian society. Yeah, they want to go back to this pagan world, and they're, they're so naive. They don't realize that that means someone could just come and enslave them, and that's, that's the pagan way, right? That they're agreeing to that. Absolutely. And they don't know the trouble it would get them into. They think they would have even greater freedom, and all they would have it is slavery and hard labor or death. All right. Should we do this last point? I gather. Okay. So 30, Israel was to be the chief amongst the nations. In other words, to be the most powerful, the most resourceful. You know, and if you just look who is that nation today, well, it's always been the white race and it always has been throughout all time. So we must be the Israelites, right? No other nation has ever been at the top until now when we're starting to decline and we're gradually being subverted, right? But that's a whole nother prophecy. Well, well right. And, and it's probably since the time of Alexander the Great that nations descended from the Israelites of the Old Testament have ruled the known world. And, and that includes that the Macedonian Greeks, and that includes the Romans, who were pre-Christian, but that world was the first to, to among the earliest to become Christian. Once the nations of Europe became Christian, they fell into a process of development which brought them far above any of the competing races, the Turks, the Mongols, um, the Arabs, in, in technology 
and to a level of culture so much higher than any of those other people. It, it's the, the heights that we have achieved as a people were achieved when we were Christians. Now we are post-Christian, as the Jews relish describing the West today, where many, Christ, many former Christians are completely disaffected. And the churches have, have contributed greatly to that because they've become absolutely corrupt. But now that we are post-Christian, we see that we, as a race and a culture, have entered into a period of decline. And, and we're going to continue to decline if we don't return to Christ. It's that simple. And, and that's also prophesied in the scripture. But as long as we were Christians, we became the greatest of nations, whether it was in Germany or in England or in France at diverse times or, or here in the United States, Australia, we became collectively the, the greatest of nations. And we've stayed that way now for well over a thousand years, probably for 1,500, if we want to count the... Um, the Goths who eventually destroyed Rome and themselves turned to Christianity. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of Yahweh thy God, to observe and do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that Yahweh thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of Yahweh thy God. Now, that was a, a commandment given to the ancient children of Israel once they received the law. But that promise still holds true in Christ, that if we hearken to his voice and keep his commandments, that we will become the greatest of nations, and we did, but we only did once we accepted Christianity in Europe. Because before we accepted Christianity in Europe, Europe was a, well, it was still a very fractured state. In um, later history, European nations were pitted against one another, but that was for different reasons. In pre-Christian Europe, European tribes constantly looted and pillaged each other, stole each other's women, butchered each other as a matter of day-to-day -day existence. The later battles between principalities and nations were usually can usually be attributed to other reasons than raw lust, which the ancient tribes had for one another, and by which they butchered one another pretty consistently, the Saxons, the Franks, the, the um, Hungarians, and, and the Goths, and the other tribes forever competing against one another for a bigger slice of the pie or for one another's booty. The Saxons were constantly raiding the Franks to the West. And for that reason, Charlemagne 
had invaded Germany and forced them to convert to Christianity and, and overcame them. It was out of self-defense. It wasn't necessarily for religious purposes. It was for the purpose of civilizing them. The, the pagans have this story that, um, what, what was it, Charlemagne cut down some holy pagan tree and that's what caused all the commotion, that they try and blame everything on him. <laughs> well, that's not true because when um, his grandfather, Charles Martel, was fighting against the Muslims in, in that, that had invaded France from Iberia, when he was fending them off, the Saxons were looting and pillaging the, the villages of France in the east. So he was really fighting on two fronts. He had the Muslims on one side and the Saxons on the other. And the Saxons continued that behavior until Charlemagne. So as pagans, the Saxons were um, absolutely objectionable. That They were constantly destroying their fellow white tribes. As Christians, under Otto I, the Saxons had a wonderful civilization just a couple of hundred years later. Yeah, and as for the um, Deuteronomy commandments, Christ said, keep my commandments, right? So he must be God, and he's referring to the Ten Commandments, and he even added one commandment on top to love each other as he has loved us. So very clearly we must obey those commandments to get the blessings, right? Sorry, I meant to uh, say that when you said that. Well, well, right, absolutely. And and I'm going to, um, I call those Ten Commandments, there are other commandments in the law, things that we shouldn't do, like a man that lies with a man should die, right? That's a commandment, not to commit sodomy. And Paul condemns sodomy in his epistles, in several of them. Well, well, so there are other commandments in the law, but those Ten Commandments I consider the primary commandments. And if we love one another, as the Apostle John explains in his first epistle, we should keep those commandments. That's how we express our love for one another, by remaining moral and obedient to that code of ethics that those commandments lay down for us. If we do that, we'll always get along. So it's not hard. We only need those 10 basic laws. And we have that promise that we will always be the chief among the nations, the first of nations. And then there's the other part, the, the curses, right? That if you do not uh, obey uh, Yahweh's commands, then essentially the opposite would happen. We would become the tail and uh, the devils would become the head. And that's exactly what's happened today. And if you just look at the perspective, we obeyed Christ, uh, the commandments, we rose to be the greatest nation. And then we gradually, as you said, post-Christian, and now we're collapsing, we're falling, we're you know, we're essentially working for devils. They they own all our businesses, everything. And only whites fulfill this to the letter, exactly. So only we can be the Israelites. No other race can fulfill both at all, or even one. Well, right. The other races never kept these commandments. 
they they can't possibly apply to them that this that these blessings of obedience and curses of disobedience in Deuteronomy chapter 28 describe our history as a people precisely after we accepted christianity and from the time that we had all become christian nations in europe even in spite of the wars that we had amongst ourselves we always dominated over and had victory over the other races and and came during the colonial period to rule the entire world the british had had conquered and ruled over india with perhaps 30,000 troops. I don't know if they ever had more than 30,000 troops in India, but they ruled the entire continent of, of a couple of hundred million people with 30,000 troops. Now, I'm not saying that's good. They should have just exterminated all the bastards because they're filth. But instead, because we departed from Christianity, because we became that post-Christian society, now that filth inhabits London. So these blessings of obedience and curses of disobedience and our own modern culture and the course that it's taken, are, are, it's absolutely evident that that's the process we're going through. And when you read the curses of disobedience, that every one of them are upon us today that aliens would take your sons and daughters and you wouldn't be able to do a thing about it and today all across america we have these young blonde white girls and and they're, they're hanging on the hips of these baboons these african negroes and their fathers are vexed by it but can't do a damn thing about it that those curses of disobedience, there is no doubt they are upon us. That's what's happening. When you examine them, they cannot be denied. And therefore, we must be the subject of them. Because other races mix all the time. And, and they, they don't consider it a curse when, when they have all little multicolored children. Yeah, and most of our people are trapped in excessive tax and debt. And where does all the money go? It goes to uh, feed these mud people. They get free houses. Um, they get benefits if they have children. I believe they recently announced they're going to give special packages for black babies. You know, And we have to pay for all this. I mean, this, this is exactly what the curses says, that you will work and, and <laughs> others will enjoy the fruits of your labor, right? Well, well, right, and and these neo-pagans and, and all of these other um, white nationalist types that, that are disaffected by Christianity who simply don't or, or who refuse to understand what we're saying, they think that they're going to have their own political solutions to these, to these problems, and they're just kidding themselves. The only solution to these problems is found in Deuteronomy chapter 28. There is no other solution. There's never going to be another solution. And on that note, we should probably call it a night or a morning. Yeah, sure. Well, that's um, the first 30 of your 100 proofs, I, I pray. I mean, yep, I'm, yep. I'm sure that you're not going to be bound by the, the numbering or, or order that we're doing this series of podcasts in. 
I mean, when no, you no, I didn't want to. Res- originally, I was gonna try and categorize it like this ten will be this, this ten will be that. But then I thought that that would put purposely limit me. It would put limitations. I would be forced to make ten of this, ten of that. And I thought I would just do the best, what whatever the best proofs were. You know, even if it's five here, seven there, you know, whatever. But um, next, I hope we could go into like the Assyrian tablets. And, um, you know, Josephus and some of the real hard evidence that's, um, you know, deep in scripture and archaeology, uh, you know, fun stuff, I think. So, okay. Yeah. Just send me a list. All right. All right, Bill. Thanks for having me. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of our European race, not the God of all these bastards out there. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Praise Christ. And good night.